Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June 25th, 2014, and this is episode 1376 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, you got just me today. I had another one of these things where there's a snafu with the interview and what have you, and uh, I'd say this time it was as much as my fault as it was the guest's fault, really, sort of. Anyway, um, it left me with like, okay, what do I do for a Thursday show on my own? And I, I am thinking about moving more to like a two-interview, one-week, one-interview, the next week schedule, because I like to do these shows. These are the type of shows that built TSP. I mean, there were some feedback shows with email, but for the first two years, 95% of shows were just like this. They were me talking about one thing. And, you know, there's, there's a, I love doing the interviews, don't get me wrong, but there's a fundamental truth. When something works, you keep doing it. And uh, I also enjoy this, and I think that that's a big part of it, too. And I don't, don't mean I don't enjoy interviews. I just mean, you know, I enjoy just chatting with you and telling you about what's going on in my life and how we're, uh, how we're building up our own self-sufficiency. Today, I'm going to kind of do that in two parts. Today's show is called Life with the Birds and Extending Food Forests. It's kind of separate things. And uh, I figured that way, those that aren't really big into the permaculture thing can enjoy the birds thing anyway. The birds are... Uh, Part of a permaculture system here, but they're birds, and they are what birds are. And I think most people in the self-sufficiency world understand that things like chickens and ducks and geese have a big part to play in living a sustainable lifestyle and one with redundancy and resiliency in it. So we'll talk about that today. Uh, before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, knifekits.com. Hey, you want to learn a skill? How about making knives? Okay, so you decide you're going to make knives, and you've got a grinding wheel in front of you, like an old bastard grass file or something like that. You picked up at a flea market. You saw some guy in a forum that did it, and you're like, okay, what do I really do now? I'm not really ready to go this far on my own yet. How about you get a kit and learn the basics first and you branch off from there. And whenever you need uh, materials, exotic or otherwise, to uh, to advance your, your uh, hobby and you're even past the basic kit stage, you can still go back to KnifeKits.com. If, if it exists, man, they've got it. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. What a great skill to have. Next up today, uh, a guy that plays with knives too, but uh, he's not really known for the knife. He's known for what you do after you use the knife. That's Chef Keith Snow, uh, chef extraordinaire, might I say. Chef Keith is awesome, man. His his uh, his spice mixes are great. I just ordered a ton of stuff from him. I mean, just to give you an idea of... Now, some of this is going to my son, but just to give you an idea of how big a fan I am of Keith Snow, if I call up Keith and say, dude, you're my sponsor, man, just throw me some stuff, he's going to do it. I just ordered well over $200 worth of stuff from him. I ordered... Um, the, uh, the, the basil pesto pasta sauce. I ordered like six of those. My wife, or nine of them, because my wife loves that stuff. And uh, a whole bunch of the TSP packs, right? So there's, uh, there's now a pack that's my favorite seasonings. Uh, TSP monster pack and great big containers. I ordered a bunch of that stuff. Some for my son, some for us. And I even put in the thing, Keith, don't give this to me, man. If I, if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't let other people spend their money on it. I wouldn't recommend that other people spend their money on it. I also said, if you want to send some extra free stuff, go ahead. 
Anyway, we'll see if he does that. But Chef Keith is awesome, guys. I mean, I can't give you a better endorsement than I just did. I use his products. I buy his products. And I'm not required to pay. He'll send me anything I ask for, really. He's a great guy. He's got a great podcast. He's got great videos. Great website. He'll teach you to make cooking a life skill. HarvestEating.com. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You know what? You'll get a great discount to Keith Snow. You'll get a discount on KnifeKits.com. You'll get a discount on most of our sponsors. You'll get discounts on about 20 companies that aren't even sponsors. You're just MSB-supporting vendors. It is a membership that will pay for itself. It's 50 bucks a year. You do the math. That's 18.3 cents an episode. So when you're done with a couple episodes of the show, if every time you're done listening to me you think, you know what, that's worth 20 cents, consider joining and then get your money back by uh, – Getting discounts on the things you're probably buying anyway. With that, let's get into the year that was the episode, the year 1376. Good night, sweet prince. While in Spain, Edward the Black Prince contracted an unspecified disease that morphed into crippling edema. A water built up in his legs. He was carried on a litter back to England and was dying for some time. After gathering together his father, King Edward III of England, and his younger brother, John of Gaunt, the prince exacts promises to support his son. Richard II is his heir apparent. The black prince is carried to the king's great chamber at Westminster, makes out his will, and dies there at the age of 45. His armor is hung over his crypt in Canterbury Cathedral, including his sword. But that will be taken by Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. In modern day cop, in the modern day copies of his armor remain on display in the cathedral. But Edward's actual armor is nearby. I wonder if you can see his actual armor. I'd kind of like to see armor from 1370s, you know, and, and that was actually worn by somebody like this. Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Historians differ on how they judge the life of Edward the Black Prince. In modern terms, he was a horrible person. But in the context of time, he was considered legitimately fulfilling his duties. He loved his wife dearly, and she loved him. He did all that he could for his son, Richard II, to secure his place as heir apparent. Richard II will become king at in 1377 at the age of 10. He will be go, But he will be going bye-bye by 1399, and it won't be pleasant. So we'll hear about that when it comes. My take is... How, what is reasonable or good or moral changes with time? I recently told you guys a story about how when I was a young kid, I asked one of my grandfather's friends, this is a guy he had known forever, an older Irish gentleman, you know, you know, what did you guys do about all the deer when you were trying to feed yourselves from your garden during the Great Depression? And he said, weren't no deer boy, right? And he explained to me how morals changed based on the context. And what he, what he, what he explained to me, and you know, this is, Far from being anything like what the Black Prince did, but you know they killed deer. They, if there was a deer, they killed it and they ate it. They didn't worry about the law. They didn't worry about anything. And there sure as hell wasn't any game wardens coming around to do anything because they were you know hungry too. And uh, everybody was just trying to get by. And nobody would have ever thought twice about turning somebody in for killing a deer or a squirrel or a rabbit out of season at a time when people were literally feeding themselves from whatever they could find. And that was rural life in the coal region. And that's just the way that it was. And that, you know, it wasn't like people went out there and tried to wholesale slaughter every animal, but when the opportunity came, it was, it was taken. It was an opportunity for meat. So it wasn't like these guys were running around hunting in the traditional way, um, 
365 or anything. And though the population of game in this country during the Great Depression was probably the lowest point that it ever reached, just just an FYI on that, um, especially certain animals. Anyway, it wasn't like they were out there just doing that. But like you know, first of all, that deer shows up, and we you know we have farmers today that shoot deer for crop damage and things like that. So that deer shows up, it's going to eat the food that you're growing plus its meat. They just killed it, and no one said a thing. No one considered it wrong. So in the 1300s, Edward would slaughter a town. And in general, unless you were the people getting slaughtered, you're like, oh, well, that's the way things are. In fact, even if you're on the receiving end of it, as long as you're not the one at the end of the point of a sword, you know, but you heard like the town down the road got sacked, you just, well, hopefully it won't happen here, or hopefully if they do come here, we'll have time to get away, because people lived with the mentality of that's the way that things are. And when I think about that, I think about a lot of things that go on today that I consider to be horrible things, they're not as horrible as some of the things we talk about in the history segment. Some places in the world they are. There's places in the world right now that are just as bad as anything that happened here. But I'm talking about in this country. Theft of property, stepping on people's rights, interfering with people's ability to just live their life the way that they choose, and the way certain people are treated. And I think about how many people just say, that's just the way that things are. I don't like it any more than you do, but that's just the way that things are. And I think, I often tell you guys I'm a realist. When it comes to a lot of things, I have to accept the way things are. But it doesn't mean I have to approve of them. And it doesn't mean that I have to stop speaking my mind that they should change. And it doesn't mean that I should stop calling for change. And it doesn't mean that I should stop rallying people toward making those changes. Because if no one does that, then maybe many of the things that were considered just to be fine in the 1370s still would be. Or maybe many of the things that were considered to be fine, let's say, in 1800, still would be. And maybe it would still be legal for one man to own another man in what is proclaimed to be the greatest nation that's ever existed in the history of the world. It was the fact that some people said, no, that's not just the way things are. That is the way things are. But it doesn't mean they have to be that way. That's why they're not anymore. As we fight for liberty in our time, remember how far we've come, but don't forget how far we have to go. With that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Again, this is uh, Life with the Birds and extending the food forest. Hey, people say it's for the birds or whatever. I don't mean like the Life with the Birds. I mean, actually, like I have birds. And I have a life with them, and we hang out, and we talk to each other, and we discuss things, and sometimes they get into trouble, and I have to bail them out. It's uh, it's an interesting world I live in. I'd kind of like to tell you about all of them, not every individual, but each group, what we've got going on right now. So right now, we've got in our main chicken coop a flock of 17 birds. Eight of them are adolescents. Uh, they're half-grown. Of those eight adolescents, four are roosters. They're in there with the balance of adult birds that are about a year and a half old, our main laying hens, and our rooster, who we named Upgrade. Upgrade, as in the movie Idiocracy. He was a pimp in the movie Idiocracy. You can look it up if you want to. Just you'll have a hard time spelling Upgrade the way that he did. And the funny part was that Upgrade had like double, triple letters all the way across his name, 
And he said, it's with two Ds for a double dose of pimping, but there was only one D. It was an idiot in idiocracy, and that's our rooster. Upgrade the idiot pimp. And Upgrade is just now beginning to really figure out that these four little adolescent roosters are adolescent roosters. And these four little adolescent roosters are just beginning to figure out that they have a problem with each other as well. But everybody, there's no bloodshed yet or anything like that. But the reality is that in time, even with the rest of the expansion of this flock that I'll tell you about in a second, uh, I have to call roosters. I just have to. And if you're going to keep birds, you get to a point where culling is necessary. In other words, you have to kill and consume. You don't have to eat them, but I mean it's you know it's a waste otherwise. But you're killing and eating in some ways creatures who have become on some level your friends. You're eating your friends. Hmm, that's an interesting moral dilemma, isn't it? Now the thing is, these are chickens. Their purpose is for food. That's why they exist. They exist to lay eggs and they exist for food. Um The hard part here with these young roosters is they can only get so big before you kill them. And frankly, since they're not meat breeds, they only get so big before I have to kill them. And they're not as big as they could be. Or I have to sequester them off on their own into some kind of chicken tractor or paddock shift system to get a little bit more size on them. It's probably not worth the effort. So I have to kill a young bird that's not going to give me a lot of meat. Which means I've made a decision um, after last year when I had to cull out six uh, Faomi cockerels. I will never pluck cull birds again. I just won't do it. I won't pluck them. It's too much work. It takes too much time uh, for too little of a return. Now, I have a Red Ranger hen that was, was salvaged from a meat run. She was supposed to be a cockerel, and she wasn't. So she got to go to the... She got to go to the coop and be one of Upgrade's girls versus get hung up by a tree and, you know, processed. So when she dies, I'll probably pluck her. She'll be a great stewing hen. She weighs about nine and a half pounds. This bird is huge. These other birds, though, you know, they're lighter birds. And, you know, you, you come to some realizations when you have to face life and death, even for a chicken, and reality without the ability to change reality just because you don't like it. This is part of why I think so many of our young people could use a dose of homesteading, because reality is there, and then you must deal with it. And here's what I mean by that. I would have told you two years ago not plucking a chicken was just a waste. There's so much fat on the skin, and it tastes so good and all. But in the end, when you, when you look at the harsh reality of dealing with a chicken that weighs three and a half to four pounds live weight, plucking that bird is just not worth it. You can skin that bird, cut its back open to pull it apart, gut it from behind instead of having to cut open the uh, the butt. So much easier, so much less likely to rupture an intestine or or you know the, the colon or what have you. Clean it out, part it out, and be done with it in less than five minutes a bird. Way less than five minutes a bird. Or you can sit there and pluck with it and mess around with it and spend 10, 15 minutes per bird. And you end up with a carcass that's not that valuable. So you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision based on your time and what's available and being respectful of the animal. That's one of the things I've learned from dealing with birds. And the fact of the matter is, while I'm I'm okay feeding a couple extra roosters, I don't have to have that many eggs. And I like having roosters with my birds because they take care of them. The fact of the matter is, I don't have room for that many roosters. And there'll be more coming out of the next batch. So the next batch, the next group of birds we have, are all within two weeks of each other. We have two waves. We have a group 
of 40 birds, and they are 20 buff Orpington pullets. Pullet is a hen, for those that are new to chickens. So 40 girls, and they're all buff Orpingtons. These are a bird that gets pretty big. These are a bird that uh, lays pretty good eggs. They're a very gentle, easy-to-work-with bird, and uh, they have to put some size on. They're a good dual-purpose bird. They're actually a decent meat bird. They're not a great meat bird. If you were raising birds for market, specifically, I've got chicks. They're going to graduate next number of weeks, and I'm going to sell them off as meat birds. You would not do buff Orpingtons. But if you were using birds and you wanted to solve the reality I just gave you, right, then you would, you would think about the buff Orpington. Because these birds, as they get old and they stop laying and it's time to replace them, I probably will pluck. They're probably worth plucking. And even if I don't, even if I skin them, I'll get a much better meat carcass out of them. So, you know, that's another way that you deal with reality is you make a new decision going forward without regretting or lamenting the decisions you've already made. You know, my already made decision was going with Rhode Island Reds and, uh, and uh, Red Sex Link Birds and... Uh, you know, I've got some other birds I'll tell you about in a second that I, I really like um, that are going to be small carcasses, but they're great for what they do, which is lay eggs. So I've got those 20 buff Orbingtons. Then I had, I decided, you know what, let's see what happens. Let's just get a mix. So I ordered a straight-run mix of 20 more birds. There's some buff Orbingtons in there. There's some little black chickens in there, a whole bunch of different colors. And uh, I'm hoping maybe I'll have one buff Orpington rooster because I may upgrade, upgrade to the the, the smoker and uh, re-rooster this year, or with as big as this flock's going to be, we may get to where we can have two or three roosters that'll tolerate each other. We'll, we'll see. But I'd like to get some Orpington male genetics into some of my lines as well with my chickens. So we have this group of mixture, and that was so we would get some cockerels, and we could see what we were going to get, and we could make some decisions based on what we would get. Then we have another group of 27 birds. I put 28 eggs in the incubator, 27 of them popped out. I didn't count my chickens before they were hatched, but I got pretty damn close to the number that went in the incubator. There's a couple little Faomi crosses. Now, these are Egyptian Faomis, which I really don't like, crossed with a Rhode Island Red, which I really do like. So we'll see what that hybrid brings us. This is going to be a small-bodied bird. Um, there's a bunch of just Rhode Island Reds and Rhode Island Red rooster crossed to the sex link bullets. And there's some in there that are red Rhode Island Red crossed to the Red Ranger hen. Her eggs are obvious which ones are hers. They have a totally different look than the other eggs. They're really, really light brown, and they're actually smaller even though she's bigger. And so we made sure we had some of her little guys in our group. So hopefully we'll get a pullet or two with those genetics to play with and see what happens and how they lay and what body size they have on. But basically what I'm telling you is my efforts now are around getting birds that lay really, really, really well and produce a decent carcass when it's time to harvest them because I feel bad killing a bird and getting a quarter pound of freaking meat off of it. I don't think it's ever been that bad, but I've, I've killed some of these young birds when you have to, and you probably get a pound of meat, if that, a pound of actual meat. Now, you get, you get, the, you get the, uh, the liver, you get the gizzard, you get the heart, you get the bones and the cartilage and connective tissue, which all make great stock. It's not like it's a complete waste, but honest to God, you're not getting you're getting the meat of two quail off a chicken. And it just feels kind of wasteful. So I'm trying to up the body size. At the same time, I'm continuing to work with birds of smaller, lighter body types 
because I'm getting great results on my feed-to-egg ratios. So I'm playing around with, you know, Rhode Island Red crossed to a Tetra Tint. A Tetra Tint is a white leghorn hen crossed with a Rhode Island Red Cockerel. So we're taking that prodigy, and that Tetra Tint is available from Tractor Supply. It's one of their, you know, proprietary birds, they say. But I don't know what's proprietary about it, because anybody can put a leghorn and a, and a, a red together and breed them. And we're taking their offspring and crossing them back. So now we've got a bird that's two-thirds Rhode Island red and one-third uh, white leghorn. I've got two hens and two roosters. I may try to save one of those roosters. They're cool roosters. They're tough as shit. They're mean as hell already to a degree, but they're actually getting along, the two of them. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I don't know that you'll ever really be able to tell like you do with a sex-linked chicken. Now, a sex-linked chicken, for those that don't know, you've got a little puffball chick who just came out of the egg. If they're what's called a sex-link, if they're all one color, like a little yellow one, that's a male. And if they're kind of like brown and yellow mixed, they're a female. And it's real obvious, and it's, they're bred to do that so that you can separate them easily by sex when they're born. Now, what happened with these is when they were born, they were little yellow puffballs with little black speckles here and there. Like, not a speckle's not the right word. Maybe a little spot here, a little spot there, that type of thing. And they all appeared black, but I didn't really look very, very close. Next time we run some through, maybe I'll look a little closer and see if you can tell at all if there's a different shade. Because now that they're adolescents, the males where they were spotted and more than where they were spotted, like more has come out, have a chestnut red-brown spots on them. Like a calico almost. Like white with these little places where they have this red-brown that looks just like a Rhode Island Red's brownish-red color. The females where they have markings, and they're all white otherwise, both, both the females and the males, are black. Jet black. It's an interesting thing with genetics, and it's something that... You know, for all of the things that we know about breeding chickens, if you didn't take it in and do that yourself, you probably wouldn't know. And it'll be interesting to see how these birds lay because their mother, this is why I've done this, even though she's a light bird, this bird is fast as a cat. Man, this bird is quick. This bird is mean. She's not aggressive mean, but if some, but if a big bird tries to push her out of her, out of their way, she's like, I don't think so. She really is. She'll, she'll kind of like, she doesn't go out and try to drive them away, but you've seen chickens with the pecking order thing, and they'll try to drive her off some feet or something, and she'll just beat their ass. She's like, I don't think so, which means she's got stamina. She lays the biggest damn eggs. As little as this bird is, when she's laying an egg and I hear her in there, bah! I'm like, God, I feel bad for her. You know, it's going to be hard for that little bird to lay that big egg. And she eats, she doesn't eat much. So she's got a great egg-to-feed ratio. She's a great forager. I can't see anything catching and killing this chicken. Um, it, if it, if it's, there's probably stuff that could, but it's going to end up taking one of the other slower birds first. So she's good, good predator evasion. So we'll see how that whole line of genetics works out. And in my... Next batch that I hatch, I have more of those that are crossed, the little yellow fuzzy balls that come out. So those and the Fayomi crosses, I've got more of those, and then a bunch of other stuff. So i got another, what is that, 40, 68 chickens-ish, call it 65 chickens, that will be culled out the males, but our laying flock will go up by at least 30 to 40 birds. So we're going to have a big laying flock by fall. 
And that's when Dorothy plans on starting to sell eggs to our neighbors. Because right now we have more eggs than we can use, but not enough eggs to build an egg business on them. When she said she wanted to do it, I immediately started up in the population. Some of you have seen the videos, and the way that I've taken to handling the, the little chickens now is I use six uh, eight-foot hog panels, and they have a plastic chicken fence, real small holes chicken fence, tie wrap to them to keep those little birds from climbing through the holes in the hog panels. This makes a very lightweight, six-sided, fairly large space for them that's easy to move. And we've gone to putting dog kennels, portable plastic dog kennels with you know the little gates that open in the front. You put a dog in and put him on an airplane or whatever, a dog kennel like that. We have a bunch of extra ones from when we've had dogs in the past and moving and stuff like that. So we have two big ones we put in there, and they go in there at night, and uh, we'll close them in. And that is another layer of predator protection. Right now, it just it's pouring again. This is four days in a row of rain in Texas. And if you saw my videos... Um, You know, the day before yesterday where I put out with the rain that we got, like an inch of rain, my swells are full. They were just down about halfway. I bet this rain's going to fill them back up. Anyway, I'm looking out right now, and I don't see a baby chicken one. All of them are hiding in there. So they have shelter from the rain. That gives them some shade protection, things like that. And when they're big enough to be introduced to the flock, we'll put them in there at night like we always do. And that seems to work pretty well. Moving on to our other birds that we're having a life with. Or geese. So we've named the geese the Barnyard Mafia. And I really need to go through all the pictures and videos that I have of them. And I need to dedicate like a couple weeks of maybe even instigating some of the behaviors that they do. Where they chase the other animals away. Or they go after strangers. Or they cage. They really just won't come after me anymore. I've picked them up too many times. And Oh, here's a little tip for you guys that are dealing with geese. As you deal with geese and they get aggressive towards you and you're dealing with them every day and you're handling them every day, you might want to think about this with a bird that doesn't know you and be a little bit more careful if you do it. But when they come after me, I reach out and grab them by the head. I grab them by the head loosely, just enough to control them, and I pull them forward and I pick them up like a fit football. I take, so I'm take, i taking my right hand, pull them forward, and I put my left hand, and I'll try to get... It's hard to get, like I said, it's hard to get them up this way anymore because they won't come after me anymore because I do this to them. And I don't hurt them. I only understand I don't hurt them. It's just enough of a grab to control them. And when you grab a goose by his head and you cover up his eyes and he can't see what's going on, he's not sure. And he kind of relaxes actually a little bit. And you kind of pull him almost like a martial arts move. And when you pick him up, by the time he figures it out and starts trying to wing beat, you've got his wings tucked in. And, and, and we'll hold him like that. But for everybody else, they still try to bite and chase and hiss and honk. And they will, if you give a bunch of feed or something to one of the other groups of birds, even if it's something they're not interested in, they come in and run everybody off. So we call them the Barnyard Mafia. The Barnyard Mafia was the Barnyard Five Mafia. And uh, we only had two of them that we had named. One was Nemo, and he was the one that survived the attack. Some predator got in here back when they were adolescents last year and killed three of them and ended up killing three females, which was really kind of a devastating thing to happen because we had a four-and-four four flock, and we were pretty hot, excited about breeding geese. Uh, but it turned out all, all three that were killed were females, so we're left with four males and one female. That's the barnyard five. Number five was the female. Because she was a female, she did her own thing, so we called her number five. Everybody else would wander off in one direction or be led somewhere, or you'd ask them to go, and they'll go. They're the easiest birds I've ever worked with, honestly, geese. As aggressive as they are, I can get those birds to go anywhere I want them to go. Really, I, If they're in the back of my pasture 
and I want them out in, into the main property, and I don't want the chickens out, as long as the chickens aren't right next to the gate, I can open that gate and go goose, 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 real loud, and those birds will come and exit, and the chickens will ignore it, because goose, goose, goose isn't their call, chick, chick, chick is. little tip for you, when you're managing these animals, when you feed them, give them all their own name. Goose, duck, chicken, whatever. Make sure they all have their own name or whistle or sound or something that's unique to them being rewarded. And that way you can manage them separately. That's another thing I've learned from Life of Birds. And reading Mark Shepard's book, he talks about doing that with pigs and cattle and having different whistles for them so you can get them to do different things. And I thought, well, I must be happening on the right way because Mark kind of knows what he's doing. So whenever we would do that, this one goose, and this is before we knew who was female and who was male, we weren't sure who was the gander and who was the goose yet, would just, like, just go somewhere else and then end up behind the fence and not know where the gate was and just freak out and scream and yell and have to go get her and chase her back to the rest. So we ended up calling her number five. We called Nemo Nemo because he was a survivor like Nemo the fish. And then this year... Number five started laying eggs. We were absolutely sure at that point. We'd seen breeding activity, so we knew she was female. But when they start popping eggs out, you know what you're dealing with. So she starts popping out eggs, but she's not gone broody. So we incubated a bunch of eggs, two hatched, and one was like alien or something. It was bad. I had to kill it and put it out of its misery. And it was it, it, I hate killing something that young. I mean, it was just awful the way this thing was deformed. I don't know why. The other eggs did not hatch. One egg hatched. The one egg that hatched is Buddy the Goose. I'll explain why his name is Buddy now, but he doesn't live with the Barnyard Mafia yet. We're trying to integrate him back in. Right about the time that I had gotten another batch of eggs, I'd gotten eight eggs from, uh, from, from number five. Actually, I'd gotten six eggs from number five. All of a sudden, I look in there, and she's got a nest, and she's pulling down feathers off her chest. And I start pulling down... That's a goose going broody. So she's going broody. She laid two more eggs. So I took the six eggs that had been in the incubator. and Actually, they had been on the shelf. I hadn't incubated them yet. She laid two more eggs. I took her eggs. I wasn't sure she was going to go broody. So I took the old, she had some old eggs, too, that were out in the cold, and I knew they wouldn't hatch. I marked them with an X from a Sharpie, and I put them in her nest. So she thought she had eggs. And I kept stealing the new eggs, and uh, I put them in the incubator for, like, Uh, six days, I think, how long, how long they were in there. So they were being turned, they were being perfectly cared for, and I looked, and that goose was not leaving that nest. She was sitting on those eggs, and I'd have to go in there, and she'd bite me and whatever, and I'd lift her up, and the four eggs with the X's were still there. She stopped laying. She was out of eggs and had gone broody. So taking a gamble and figuring she'd do a better job than me, I took those those eggs out, those four eggs out, and I put the eight eggs that she had laid that had been in the incubator underneath her. She successfully hatched four of them. One has disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. The other three are now adolescent geese. They look like adult geese now. They've got the right pattern and all. They're still a little fluffy and their feathers aren't all in, but they've got the right colors and all. And they're, you know, a few, six weeks, I guess, behind Buddy. Buddy looks like a small adult goose now. Um... So they're there. Now, it's interesting to watch characteristics get handed down, whether they're physical or behavioral. So here's a behavioral characteristic. We now have number eight. Number five and number eight. Number five, because she has babies now, pretty much doesn't do her own thing anymore. She goes with the flock. 
when it's time for them to leave. So I go open up their cage in the morning, I let them out of their area, and I decide, well, I want to move them onto the main property. So I go, goose, 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 everybody goes honk, 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 comes running for the gate and runs through the gate, including number five. Not number eight. Number eight is inside the closed-in area, running back and forth, up and down the gate, and since it's not a full-grown goose, instead of honk, 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 it's peep, 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 screaming and yelling, and can't figure out where the, the door is because it didn't follow everybody else when they left. So I'll go in there and catch number eight. And when I catch number eight, the others all come back and attack me. So that would be one way I could get some footage of them coming after me. Now, they don't do it real aggressively. They're just trying to protect their baby. So I bring him out, and I put him down, and everybody goes off their way. So now we have Nemo, number five, and number eight, and Buddy. Now, Buddy, here's how Buddy happened. We got a dozen ducks from Tractor Supply. Uh, they have a condition, they had a condition, a sickness, I think that a lot of people call tractor supply disease. Meaning that, uh, sometimes when you get birds from tractor supply, they're not quite that healthy. Though I can't really blame tractor supply that much, because I got them the day they came in. So that one like they were at tractor supply a long time. They must have had some kind of a virus, because we lost eight of twelve ducks. We only had four. And those ducks were acquired and, and coming up right about the time Buddy hatched. So we didn't want Buddy to be alone. So we put them with the baby ducks. Buddy survived. Four of the baby ducks survived. All of a sudden, Buddy and the ducks are Buddy and the ducks, right? Like Benny and the Jets. So they grow up together in the chicken tractor. Then they go into the, the hog panels. And, I mean, the ducks thought Buddy was mom, I think, because he was twice as big and eventually three times as big as them. I've got pictures of little baby ducklings sitting up on Buddy's back, and Buddy hangs out with his buddies and ducks. So... We're trying to get Buddy now to go back over with the Mafia, who some of them are okay with him and some of them kind of chase him. And he's shows off, like they run and fly, these geese. Every morning they run and fly and honk. And he'll run and fly in front of them, kind of showing off. And you can tell he's trying to work his way in, but he's not sure. He's a little bit scared. And he's having a hard time turning away from his ducks because geese imprint. So Buddy has imprinted on the ducks. The other geese are sort of okay with Buddy, but they're not cool with the other ducks. So Buddy's in this kind of weird world right now. What we may have to do with Buddy is, let's say, leave one of the ganders, because I'm pretty sure Buddy is Buddy Et, a girl. We may have to take Buddy Et and put him over in the cage where the main geese are, but not with all eight of them where they might gang up on them. We might have to let everybody else out and put one of the ganders in there with Buddy for a day. So all they have is each other, and they will be upset that they can't get with the flock. But that will start kind of a bonding experience for them. And if we can get him to bond with one, and he can kind of go into the flock with that one, then or her, she can bond with that one, we can get her into the flock. Based on behavior, and based on some observations, I am pretty sure Buddy's Buddy yet, and I'm pretty sure that number eight is a girl. So if that's the case, we'll have three females going into next year, and that'll be great for our future prospects. On the ducks. This is more about how you learn and how you deal with the situation. So Dorothy's like, I want more ducks. They're cute. I just want ducks. And I'm like, well, I like, frankly, from dealing with them, I like them better than chickens. Uh, and I like them better than geese. They don't attack anybody. Um, they're cool. They're a little harder to herd than geese. Geese, you can just kind of lead. Ducks, you got to kind of push them. And if they get in their head, like if a, if a goose gets in its head, it really wants to go somewhere else, 
A little bit of convincing, it's like, oh, yeah, screw that. I'll go where you want me to go. I know that, because the geese are like, every time you take me somewhere, it's good. I get some food, or you take me to a place where there's like a new new pond, or there's good fresh grass, or, you know, they just have figured out that when you're moving them, it's in their best interest. The ducks are like, well, we know that, but maybe we don't feel like that this time, so they do their own thing, so... Anyway, she's like, I want new, I want ducks. You know, I, said, I like the ducks. And I said, Fine, we'll get ducks. I said, How many do you want me to order? I'm going to order them from a supplier. I'm not going back to get more tractor supply disease ducks. And she said, 22, being a woman. And just like basically, I later I realized that that was not an actual number that she wanted. That was just like, why are you being ridiculous? Fine, I'll just make a number up. Fortunately, she didn't say 42 because I would have done it. My thought was, The mortality rate in these things was terrible. I got 12 and I end up with 4. If I get 22, I might end up with 8 or 10, and I'll end up about where I wanted to be in the first place, 12, 14 ducks. So I ordered 22. So now we have 22 baby ducks that are like half grown, and they're all healthy as hell, and nobody's died, which is a good thing. But they are a mixture of ducks. So the first ducks we got, we ended up with uh, three Rowans and a uh, Khaki Campbell. Now we've got Swedishes, we've got Cayugas, we've got a couple different... I think there's three that look like they're runner ducks. One's kind of like a buff, like a like a yellowish, tawny yellow. One's like a gray, and one's like a black. And they all seem to be runner ducks. Um, and they're just this cute little gaggle of ducks running around. So that's the birds. Future plans. The ducks just got a house. If Joe was here, he would have he made the joke. Whenever we put in new housing for the animals... He was always like mimicking the animals and going, look, the government's building us a house. Because I guess we kind of are their government in a way. But uh, yeah, we put in an 8 by 8 tough shed style shed um, for the ducks. And uh, they've got their cattle panels now made into, or hog panels made into basically a, a Cajun area. that won't always be Cajun, but we're kind of homing them to that area right now. So they go there every night. And... Uh, They've got their little place, and they're they're happy-go-lucky. And they are on our eastern property, which is the two main acres. And they are free to run through the gardens. They are free to run through the front pasture, through the food food forest. We pretty much let them go everywhere. They've hit some pepper plants and what have you, but it's partly, you know, they don't really like to eat pepper plants. So it's experimental. They're learning. They're figuring things out. But the geese and the ducks are very soft on the land. They don't scratch things up. They do eat some things I prefer them not to eat. They certainly eat the geese and the ducks, both eat the comfrey and they eat the cow peas, but that's fine. It's there for them and it either grows back or new stuff grows and it's not a problem. Um, we have had a problem with the baby ducks going into the garden pond and shitting it up. Uh, my garden ponds are two 470 gallon steel tanks, um, and then one more uh, 300 gallon steel tank. And they're kind of bermed, buried into the ground. Well, they can't get into the two top ones. The lip's too high. But the lowest one is almost completely buried in the berm, and they can get right in there. So they took that water from crystal clear to, to poop green uh, pretty quick. So I've put a small fence around it, and the problem is they're still small enough. Like one of those little bitty fences, only a couple feet high. You buy it like Home Depot and Lowe's, you unroll it and just stick it in the ground. Um They're small enough, yet they can still fit between the holes in it. So hopefully they're not in there right now. They got so much to play in. Hopefully they're not in there right now. But um, what we're 
what we're going to do, I've got this, the plastic, you know, chicken fencing, non-electric chicken fencing. It's got really small holes in it, and you stick it in the ground. It doesn't work good for me because of my rocks. Well, where that berm is, I'm going to put that around my pond. It'll look like hell, but it only needs to be for a couple more weeks, and they won't be able to fit through those damn holes in the fence anymore. Um, right now, it's not a problem, mostly for the last couple of days, because the swales are full, and they're like big, long, six-foot-wide, one-foot-deep canals. And all the waterfowl are just in there swimming up and down. And I've got where my previous owner of this property tried to uh, put a stock tank in it. didn't work. And it's a couple, three foot deep in the deepest spot, maybe. Probably more like two feet. And uh, it you know, probably holds 3,000 gallons of water. But it don't hold it but for a day or two. And a real rocky bottom. And not really big enough to be a pond. Um, but it's full right now, and they're, they're loving life. Between that and a little garden pond uh, that we never built yet, but it's just a hole in the ground, uh, and the swales, they've got more water than they know what to do with. So it is duck nirvana right now. The rain must be back down because the chickens are out of their kennels. So that, that's life with the birds. And, and the plan going forward, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do with the chickens in the west pasture and trying to come up with some kind of a paddock system I've thought about doing permanent fencing. The show I did recently where I talked about how you could run meat birds and reduce your feed costs with permanent fencing. And, I mean, frankly, if I had soil instead of rock shelving, I could go over there with T-post fencing and I could knock out all the fencing for $1,500, $2,000 maybe, uh, doing it all myself and taking my time and getting it all done. But I'd have to hire somebody to do this. I don't have time to sit out there jackhammering crap. Um, and it probably run me seven, eight thousand dollars or more to put fencing in it. I don't know if I can justify that, other than it would be an interesting trial, and I could promote the results. I've thought about maybe doing an independent Kickstarter for it, with the whole idea of food forest around the paddocks and things like I talked earlier. But one way or another, chickens are going to basically be running the western pasture. That acre is going to be the main chicken territories. If they're out here. They're going to be in some type of a tractor or a paddock or something like that that we're bringing them in to temporarily work. Um, and that's going to be the egg flocks. And I, I, I really think what's going to happen is I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to put in a paddock system with permanent fencing over in that acre. And I'll break it up into you know maybe six tenth acre paddocks plus one big main open laneway plus the area they have right now, which is about two-tenths of an acre that's corralled off and and that way with I can be their the sacrifice area and they can move in and out of those and I can run meat birds through there and all I have to do is take one or two areas within those and create them into smaller contained areas for brooding and it would make my life easy with brooding uh, brooding out meat birds you name it it would be and it would be great as we set up this egg operation Because customers would come right to the front of that, that pasture, be able to look down and see the birds moving through their paddocks as they come back week after week. And it would be a really good direct consumer model, and, and people would really be able to understand how well the birds are treated. So that's probably what's going to happen with the, with the uh, chickens. The ducks and geese, we'll move them over there or over here or wherever we want to, and we just let them run. They, <laughs> I'll put it to you this way. When I go out in the yard now, and I see a bunch of grasshoppers jump when I walk, and, and I see the ducks, you know, a little bit away heading in the direction. I just look at the grasshoppers, and I say, good luck. You're going to need it. Because uh, these guys are predators, man. They are tearing up the pests. Um, they are eating the grass. They 
are digging little holes in the ground whenever it rains like now. That's infiltrating the water. It's getting seed in. I mean, everything they do, I'd say 95% of what they do is positive. And the few things they eat or chew on or whatever that you'd prefer they didn't, if 5% is worth the 95. One thing we are going to have to figure out how to do is some way to keep them the hell off our porch since we're letting them range so freely because when they get up on the porch, they shit all over it. And so far, the ducks have not been a problem. The ducks have not really been up on the porch much. It's the geese. The barnyard mafia. I guess it's like leaving a fish, uh, fish head for you or horse head in your bed or whatever. They're leaving green turds on the patio. Um, so that's life with the birds. And, and the plan really is to continue to make them part of our life and uh, part of the property. I am looking forward to this group of young chickens getting out of this brooder stage, out of this uh, separation stage where they can go live in the coop and I can just be in the morning, you open the coop, you let them out, and in the evening you shut the door. Uh, make sure they have food and water and that's it. Now I have to move them. I have to clean out their kennels when it pours rain like this. Uh, they have to move every day or every other day, depending on what they're doing. Uh, I don't know where Dorothy put their food today, but if she didn't put it up underneath the cupboard, it's all wet and ruined. It's just, it's a lot more work dealing with young animals than birds that are old enough to look after themselves. With that, let's move on to part two, which will be shorter. Um, I want to talk about food forest and extending our food forest and what our plans for that are. First of all, unless something drastic happens, um, I can uh, right now... Um, tell you the date of the workshop that we'll be doing for the work I'm about to talk about, or for part of the work I'm about to talk about. Uh, by the way, that emergency tone you heard uh, there in the background, we just had a uh, flash flood alert warning in our area until 4.45 Central Daylight Time. So uh, I'm not real worried about it here, but uh, I'm going to actually pause for a minute and let my wife know to... Uh, to probably not drive home this afternoon until a little bit later. All right, so that's taken care of. And it's like, hey, honey, there's a flash flood warning. Maybe you should stay where you're at for a little bit longer. Well, I'll drive home right now. No. See, that's exactly the opposite of what I said. That's why I've called number five the goose, number eight the goose, number five number eight, because that's how you women are. <sighs> anyway, extending the food force. So, what I'm saying is uh, we pretty much have decided we are going to do a workshop this fall. It may be the only workshop we do this fall. Um, we may do two. We're not sure yet. We're going to do this one. It's going to be probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like they usually are with letting people set up on Wednesday. And those Thursday, Friday, Saturday dates are the 25th, 26th, 27th of June. 25th, 26th, 27th of June with people that want to be able to set up on the 24th. Anyway, um, I also want to tell you now that I've said that, it kind of rung a bell for me that something else I've talked about doing that we're, I'm not really doing this, but I'm, I'm making this happen so that some of you that want to go to it can. So I've had a lot of inquiries about my friend Val Riazanov, who is, uh, and that's Val Riazanov. It's not Valerie, it's Val Riazanov. This is a guy, um, who was a former member of the Russian KGB and, uh, before that actually as a young person was part of the Russian Olympic Judo squad. Uh, he's currently training security forces for the, uh, Royal Guard in the UAE. He's been doing that for quite some time now. He's done the videos that I put out back when I was in uh, media production on self-defense in a Russian martial art known as Sistema. I've talked to Neil Franklin, my own partner, about you know, if Val's going to be around, could we do some kind of seminar where people can come and learn from Val and train with Val? 
uh, like a three-day thing or a five-day thing. I don't know what it's going to be exactly yet. But Neil's all for it. They're setting things up now, and I don't know what the dates of that are going to be, but they'll be somewhere between the 4th and 7th of October. So uh, in October, 4th through 17th, I'm sorry, of October. So the first half of October, somewhere in there, will be the Valerie Asinoff Systema Workshop, just for those of you that are interested. And uh, more data will come about that as soon as I have it. Uh, but back to the food forest link. So last year, we uh, came in in the fall with an excavator, and we put in almost 600 feet of swale in my west pasture, And before that, we hand-dug several small garden swales that interconnected the part of the property that the house is on all the way from the most western edge of the house into that swale system on the eastern edge of the property. And it's pretty cool, and it's hard to explain. And the best thing you can do is watch a 10-minute video I put out yesterday in this rain that shows you how it works, and it shows you all the interconnections. Anyway... Then in the spring, we ran a hugely successful workshop. I had 32 seats, and it sold out in like a day. And uh, two people had one free attendance uh, from prior workshops where I usually give some really cool prize away, like come to another workshop for free. And both of them, of course, decided to come to this one. So I had 34, plus a staff of six, so that was 41, plus Joe and me, so that was 43 people, and various... Special guests that just show up, like Brian Brett Black from ITS Tactical showed up. Uh, some other folks showed up. Chris Starr, the Falcon guy, showed up. So we ended up with like 50 people here. And uh, this one's not going to be that big. We're going to keep it down to about 24. But we planted a lot. We planted that space. We planted its own two forests. We did a lot of things. And I've lost some trees, but most of the stuff has made it, and it's really started to come along. And just recently I went through and I chopped and dropped all of the cereal grains that were pretty much dried out, would have been ready to harvest if we were harvesting them, put them to the ground, laid down a layer of straw. And before I laid the straw down, I put down a cover crop mix of cowpea and buckwheat and a little bit of daikon and uh, you know quite a few other things, and sunflower, because the sunflower is growing so well here all on its own as a biomass accumulator so that that stuff can come up and I can drop it back down. And the trees have really started to pick up. And the mushrooms that we inoculated, you can see the mycelium growing in the in the wood chips, but they haven't started popping up yet. But you know, native spongy mushrooms and things like that have started to pop up. You can really still just see life in that area starting to come up. So I started figuring out, you know, it's it's probably a good idea that we extend this thing this fall. And I've also determined, especially in this climate. The best time to plant trees and bushes and shrubs and perennials of any kind in this climate, September, October. It really is. Um, those plants get established. They go dormant. They do something I'm about to tell you in a second, and then they bud out in spring. And the stuff that we planted last fall right now is blowing up. And even the stuff that's doing good that we planted this spring, you can tell it's not exactly adapted yet, right? A lot of it's starting to really catch fire now, but it struggled a bit. So I just kind of observed that and just decided fall planting is the way to go for anything we can get our hands on. And then in the future, there may be times where I can get something in the spring and I pot it and I keep it and I, you know, treat it with kid gloves until fall and plant it in the fall. Well, this is what I just learned. I sponsored a Kickstarter, one of the many Kickstarters I've sponsored. Uh, and I know many of you guys do this too, from a guy out of uh, Canada, 
on an organic, not an organic, a permaculture-style orchard. I can't remember what the daggone thing's called right now, but it was really, really cool. It's called the Permaculture Orchard. <laughs> Duh. Anyway, um, so I'm watching that video because it's delivered after the Kickstarter's done, and it's successfully funded and what have you. And he's explaining that the best time to plant a tree is actually right after or right before it goes dormant if it's deciduous. Because when all the leaves fall off, all the sugars and nutrients that are up in the tree, in the branches, drop down through the cambium, which is the, the area between the bark and the, and the main wood of the tree. It's that part that feeds the tree. It all moves back down. All the nutrients that were gained by the leaves all year long drain back down into the root system. And when that tree's sitting there with no leaves on it, it'll put 80% of its root growth for that season on. 80% of its root growth while the leaves are off in the winter. The roots are growing under the ground. So that just made the observation make more sense. So I decided let's 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 design this. So I talked to Bob Wells, and again, if you want trees, especially in Texas and the South, Bob Wells is the man. That guy is awesome out in Lindale, Texas. And I said, will you have trees for the fall? He said, yeah, there'll be pots. You'll need a trailer to come get them so they don't get tore up in the back of the truck or whatever. But yeah, I can have quite a bit of stuff. So I said, I'll get you a list of what I'm going to buy from you in a week. And it's two weeks, and I don't have a list yet, but I'm damn close now. And I came up with this method for extension design. That's what I'm going to call it. But now I realize it would have been a really great way to do initial design. And I found out how much easier this gets. As, you, as you're extending, everything starts to make sense. So what I did is I have a bunch of the landscaping flags, the little white flags you stick in the ground on a wire. They're about two foot long wire, a little flag on them. And I just sat down on my table and I wrote one, two, three, four. And I think I ended up with like, uh, let me see right here. I got the form. 43 new trees going in. Not bushes, shrubs, and vines, just trees. 43 new trees going in. I wrote up like 50 flags and used whatever worked out. And then I went out and I started walking the front and back side of my swales wherever I thought I was going to add trees. And I didn't worry about what kind of tree it was going to be at all. I just said, where do you think a tree should go of some sort? And I stuck all the flags in the ground in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, like paint by numbers. Then I got a clipboard, and I made a little spreadsheet that just says the number and the plant variety, and I went out there with a pen and a list of trees that I had available and could get my hands on or already owned and you know could plant that weren't planted in the ground yet. And I'd walk through, and I'd look, and I'd go, okay, well, let's look at this area. This is the... The top swale, I'm on the back side of it. It's not going to get a lot of water. It's a dry area, but it's big area. There's a lot of space up here, and there's enough irrigation overspray across the swale that if we mulch this backside and plant in it, it'll support trees, and they'll do just fine. And it's close enough to the water. If I needed to put a few sprinklers up there to irrigate with, I could do that, and at least to establishment. But it's going to be a dry area and big. What don't you have? I don't have chestnuts. Okay, let's do chestnuts back here. You look at it and go, put as many trees as you want in. You really don't want to do all chestnuts. So, okay, let's do every other one of chestnuts. So then we just write one chestnut, three chestnut, five chestnut, right? Seven chestnut. And that pretty much had all the trees, and so four chestnut trees back there. Put in Chinese chestnuts from seedlings. We might plant two or three in each hole and then select the one that performs best, not in each hole, but in a really tight group. 
and where any one of the four would be good. And as they come up, the ones that seem like they do the best, the fastest, and flower the fastest, etc., will favor them to the exclusion of the others. That's probably how we're going to do the chestnuts because this is a hard place to grow chestnuts. Chestnuts generally don't like limestone soil, and I have limestone everything. But we're going to do it. So I'm like, okay, I need, so I'm standing there, and I, well, I need something a little bit smaller, more compact, that can also deal with the dry climate, good solar exposure, interplanted with the chestnut trees back here. Okay, fig. Fig will do great. I don't have that much fig on the property, so we'll plug a fig in. So I say, number two, I write fig. And I'm like, well, I don't want all, like, uh, chestnut fig, chestnut fig, some more variety and diversity back here. Pomegranates gild well with figs. I've never seen either one gilded with a chestnut tree before, but they fit the environment. So chestnut fig, chestnut pomegranate, chestnut fig, chestnut pomegranate. And then the last spot in that row moved right over to the, the urban area. And so I've got this little compact area, lots of shade, and I've got a lot of pawpaw seedlings. Pawpaw. And I just kept going through the system that way. So, you know, I go down kind of to the next level and... Uh, they've got this big open area, and I've been wanting to put a mayhaw in, and it's got lots of eastern sun, but not much western sun, and it's really good, so I'll put a mayhaw in there. And there's places where I'd get in, I'd go, okay, well, this is this is kind of an understory area, but it's decent sun, and uh, but it needs to be a smaller tree, because it, even though I'm putting a tree here, I need a tree that's closer to bush size. So, well, let's put a Cornelian cherry dogwood in there. And by just saying tree, 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 and then going back and going, well, I got a pear there, I got a peach there, and I want a full-size fruit tree here. Okay, plum. And I didn't worry about the varieties. I just plug in peach, plum, pomegranate, mayha, pawpaw, whatever, nectarine, pluot, whatever. And then after I had those all written down on the paper, then I started looking at the varieties I either had on hand or would be available to buy, and I started putting varieties in. And the design just fell into place. It was easy. Easiest one I've ever done. So this morning, or over the last couple days, I started, I said, well, now I did all the trees in numbers, so to keep it separate, so it'll be easy for the students to understand, let's go with letters. A, B, C. Well, there's a lot more shrubs and vines and bushes. A lot more. A ton more. So A, I went through A. Got everything in that I could. There's vines up trees and all kinds of stuff marked. Got the Z. Not even halfway done. Okay, so then I got the next set of flags. Sat down at the table. A, A, B, B, C, C. So I doubled them. A, double A, double B, double C, double D. And I figured, well, that'll get me through. So I did all of that. Not enough. Well, let's see if the budget handles this, but okay, fine. We're just going to do the design and build what we can of it. So do all that, put the flags in, and I come back and I went, should have done this the first time, been like, you know, A, A1, A2, A3, but fine. So I've done single letters, double letters, and I come back and go A2, B2, C2, D2, like that. So I label all the flags. That way the flags are all labeled already. All I got to do is walk out and stick them in the ground. I did the same thing. Where should a bush, shrub, tree, or vine go? Don't worry about what it is. Don't worry about what kind it is. Don't worry about what variety it is. Don't worry about what you have or what you don't have or you can afford or you can't afford. There should be a bush here. There should be, well, there's a big oak tree there, and it's going to get water from the irrigation system, and it's going to be under the sheet mulch, so we should put something up that. So let's stick a flag there for a vine. And I just went through and put all the flags in. 
So now all I have to do is make another spreadsheet for the bushes and shrubs and vines and go back through A through Z, A, A, double A through double Z, and A1 through who knows how far we'll go, probably like, I don't know, probably like W2, right? And go back through and just write in all the varieties. Then figure out what I, you know, take into account what I have and what I can source, figure out what I can source and what I can't source, plan whatever I can't source for fall, for spring, plan everything else. And all the flags are there. When the students come in, this will be cool. Unlike last time, we were calling out things on the radio, and I've got this kind of tree. Who's got that under design? We'll be able to just drop it all in. We'll just be able to drop, like, whenever we look it up, we'll just go, okay, that goes in uh, position 17. Okay, 15, 16, 7, right there, boom. And if I was doing this alone, instead of with 20-odd people here, I'd do it the same way. I am totally sold on this now. I have always struggled with being a form-level designer. In other words, sitting down with a piece of paper and drawing out a design. I'm a visual person. I'm a thinking person. And I'll tell you what, you got to give this a try. You've got to give this a try. A small, I don't care if it's a, you know, like my small little forest, like it's like 12 by 60 feet. Pick an area you can see yourself sheet mulching. Take some rocks or something and make an outline where it's going to be. I don't mean a full outline, but just like a rock at each corner to, to, get, to close yourself in. Get yourself a handful of, of landscaping flags. You know, you don't need anywhere near as many as I'm talking about. Number them like, I don't know, one to five or one to ten, however many trees you think you can put in there. Just number four of them, and if you decide you want five, make a fifth one. And just stick them wherever a tree would go. Just stick your trees in the ground as flags and sit there and look at them and go, Apple, nectarine, chestnut, almond, um, dogwood, cornelian dogwood, cherry, cherry. Okay, there's my trees. And then go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and make like twice as many letters at least. And then go, okay, I think there should be – and you might be thinking to yourself – That's a great spot for a current because it's going to be shady and it's cooler and all. And that's fine. You can keep that in your head. But just go, okay, fine. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, A, B, C, baby. Throw them in the ground. Pick up a clipboard. Have a thing where you can write in whatever it is. A, yeah, you know what? I was right when I was thinking about it. That's a great spot for a current. Okay, this place with that bush, that's almost big enough to be where a tree would go. I need a big bush there. Uh, you know what would be great there is a wolfberry. Wolfberry, okay. And then you go over here. You go, well, I need something that's going to get four or five foot tall. Um, don't have any cane fruit in here yet. Blackberry. Uh, no, cane fruit, that's a good idea. So the next spot over here, raspberry. Okay, this is a shady spot. Gooseberry. Okay, over here, uh, let's see, something different. You know what? This is a compact area. Good solar exposure. Let's put a, a, a rose here. Yeah, rose, like a, a good hips rose, fruity rose. Okay. And then, okay, over here, I'm going to look at that. And let's see, that's, uh, there's a tree already there. Um, look at the way that's shaped. Okay, you know what? A kiwi could go up that tree. Kiwi. And then sit down with your catalogs or whatever and designing your varieties. It's so simple. It's so simple. It is the easiest planting design method. And I've used the flags before. I've used the flags, either flags or rocks or anything, just to set them out and kind of look at it. Yeah, yeah, that seems about right. But this this kind of paint-by-numbers approach is the absolute easiest thing I've ever done. Now, I'm not going to mislead myself. Right? Part of why it's easy 
is because we put the swales in already. Once the swales are in, the planting just kind of extends itself out, and we planted the mainframe already. But I'll tell you what, I would have done a better job on the mainframe design if I'd done this. And it, the class would have went better. It would have flowed easier. There's no doubt about it that it would have flowed easier. And there would be a lot more shrubs in the design already. But the reality of that was, and some of you guys saw some of the invoices, because we had lists of just the plants that were here and the costs associated. There was a, there was a, a budgetary ceiling there. So we hit the, the ceiling of the budget at that point. So, you know, we may do that again here. And not every spot with a flag right now may have a plant, but we'll know what's going there. And, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll first go with what can we get by September. What do I already have? What can I take care of? And I've got a ton of stuff already. I've got kiwis. I've got dwarf mulberries. I've got wolfberry. Uh, I'm propagating some other things right now. So we should be in pretty good shape to plant most of this. And it'd be a great workshop for you to come to. I have mixed feelings, too. Like Part of me is like going, you know what? When I open this up, If you came to the first food forest workshop, you know, if, if it doesn't sell out in a day and you want to come, come, but give people that ain't been here for that type of thing yet a chance. And the other way I feel about it is all the guys that have been here, all the gals that have been here to these workshops, I wish I could run one where everybody that's ever been can come back at the same time. And those of you who haven't met each other could meet each other. There's, I've been to a lot of stuff. You know, wilderness events and, and everything from concerts to camping. And I've seen a lot of great groups get together. Even around TSP, there's something about what we do here that's just different. It's, that's all I can tell you is it's different. Um, it, there's a certain specialness to it. And I, I, I think back to when we looked at properties, and there were several houses that I'm like, that'll work. And in some ways, the land was better than this land. In a lot of ways, the land was better than this land on a couple of them. One was 10 acres, and it was all irrigated with like big, big giant, professionally installed irrigation sprinkler system, right? And it was in a grid. And I could have, and, and, and with that, I wouldn't even have needed swales. I could have just went out and just started designing polycultures, turned the water on, and it was on a well. A deep well that wasn't going to run out. And by the time I got it established, I could water it twice a year or something like that. And it would have been simple to cut a few pipes out, do some bypasses, and put in ponds. And I mean, that place could have been phenomenal. But it was just a small house, and there was no real outbuildings or anything. And You know, now we have this basically 1,800 square foot classroom and hangout in our garage. This is the perfect place for what we're doing. And uh, I think that a lot of you guys that have the desire to own a 100 acre farm or something someday, I don't want you to not have that desire, but don't let it slow you down on what you can do with what you have. We're starting to realize here that for the small family, you know, a couple kids, a wife and a husband, or just a wife and a husband, Three to five acres is probably pretty close to perfect. It really is. And it doesn't need to be that. An acre can be really awesome in of itself. But getting into this three to five acre thing, it opens up a lot of things with livestock in different areas, you know. And then this extension thing is cool, right? There's, I don't know how many times we've looked at areas and go, what exactly do we do with that? And what I'm realizing now is don't worry about the area you haven't touched yet. You'll get there. 
just take where you've already done something and just start extending it. We're looking at another area where I have my, my, my reserve water tank, 1,500-gallon tank, catches the water off the roof of my 800-square-foot outbuilding, east-facing, big oak trees there. That's why we put the tank there. It keeps it nice and cool and shaded. Um, we've got mushroom cultivation going on back there. I've got muscadines going up those, those, those uh, oak trees, and it looks out east toward where the, the, uh, the bees are. And if you look uh, south from there, you're looking at the four-acre food forest. And the Zone 1 urban garden space comes right up to there. And when I irrigate that, I'm already spraying 10 feet out into this field that's past the oak trees. I'm like, well, all I got to do is sheet mulch that, and I can put in some bush hazelnuts and some pawpaws and some cornelian cherries. And, and, okay, there's these two trees here. and put a muscadine up that one and a kiwi up that one, a hot vine up that one out there because it gets more sun. And, boy, this is just easy. And, and, and that's what I want to also give you guys encouragement with that are working on developing your homesteads and your planting systems and your permaculture systems, build something somewhere. just And, and try to do it in a place that's going to be easy to take care of. And just start extending from there. And it gets really, really easy. And I really encourage you, if you haven't seen it yet, to look at the video that I did in the rainstorm, or right after the rainstorm, where it, it's kind of neat. I just start up in the swells and show you them all full and talk a little bit. But the end of it, like the last three minutes of it, I'm actually standing on my phone, and I put my finger out in front of the phone where you can see it. I'm talking about where the water goes and how the land is shaped. And by the time I'm done with it, you realize how the water takes about 300 yards of path before it can get off the property instead of, like, 50 feet. And how spread out that water is. And you start to really understand why these systems work the way they do. Um On the, the workshop that we'll probably be doing um, in, in September, like I said, it'll be that last weekend of September is when it looks like it's going to be, um, I'm going to try to make that one, unlike the last one, more classroom time. we got a bunch of planning to do, but it's probably you know, 24 people. Um, if we plant 120 plants, it's four or five plants a person. You know, and some people like you have to slow them down, let other people plant. It's okay. And some of them will be small plants, so be easier than putting big trees in. We'll probably be putting in, uh, well, I'll tell you, we'll be putting in about 43 trees plus another seven, uh, replacements of things that didn't make it or died need to be replaced. So about 50 trees. Uh, some of the stuff I may plant before it even happens. So, um, probably one day of work and a three day workshop. We're going to try to do more. Let's, let's talk about design. Let's talk about why this design is the way that it is. What would you change and why? Because there's no right and wrong. There are errors. Like, if you put a swale not on contour, that would be an error. If you put a swale above your house and flood your house out because you put the sill in front of your front door, that's an error. Um, and you can try to do something like, I don't know, plant an orange tree uh, in Saskatchewan, and it's probably going to die. It's an error. It's not appropriate. Um, I'm sure that you know somebody can figure out some way with enough solar trapping to maybe do it the way Holzer's grown lemons in the Alps, but in general, it's an error. But when you say something like, well, I wouldn't put kiwi up that tree, I'd put muscadine grape up that tree, or I'd put passion flower up that tree, or you know what, I'd, I'd put autumn olive in there, or whatever. It's not a, it's not a right and wrong, it's a preference. And, and the big thing with design is understanding why. So Because you can put stuff that doesn't work together. So we're going to try to work into this class more let's design and let's get students designing. And let's let's put a rough sketch 
upon a whiteboard. And let's say this is north, this is south, this is east, this is west. And let's do that. And we'll also take some spaces, and I'll give you guys flags. We'll have a bunch of them, because every time we plant something, we're going to be pulling one up. Do a design. Here, right here, here's a square. Here's small, put, put you guys in different groups. Just lay it out. Just lay, lay out trees. Great. Lay out bushes, shrubs, and vines. Great. Now, design in the types. Let's look at the contour. Let's, uh, let's get some wood stakes, and we'll, we'll put in where there'd be swales, or we'll put in where there'd be beds. Well, we'll get some garden hoses and, and lay out places where beds would be. Just, just do it. And do it both on a board and paper and in the field. I think it'll be a great workshop. So I'd love to see some of you guys come to that, especially some of you guys that uh, maybe haven't been to one yet. I hope, you know, to see some new faces, and I hope to see people that have, you know, seen before too because, man, this is a great thing. But, uh, yeah, I think that kind of wraps things up for the day. Uh, my hope was actually to go outside uh, when I got done recording this with more of my flags and finish off the design I was just talking about. But it's it's still pouring rain. Maybe I'll see if I can get you guys some video of it and do yet another update that probably won't look much different than the last one. I will put a link in today's show notes to the video I was talking about with all the rainfall in it and with the explanation of the interconnected swales into it. Um, if you've ever considered having birds, chickens, ducks, geese, whatever, and uh, – you have the space, and you've just not been sure if you can do it. Let me tell you, you can. It's not hard. And it gets easier as you go. I'm telling you today that if I wanted birds, and I just wanted a, you know, a small flock, and I wanted an egg yield, and um, I was just for me, and I wasn't going large scale, I was going to have you know, a dozen or less animals, I would probably pick ducks over chickens, especially you know high-yield laying ducks. Now, you're going to have more of a cyclical laying pattern with a duck. You're going to get more of that time where they stop laying quite as much. Um, but it happens with chickens, too. Ducks are just easier. I'm watching them play in the rain right now. They don't run or hide from the rain, and they don't scratch up your garden beds. Chickens are great, too. And uh, geese, I'll tell you this about geese. If you don't live somewhere where it's okay for animals to be noisy, don't get geese, because they are noisy little critters. And uh, if you're easily intimidated, don't get geese because, well, they'll try to intimidate you. Um, it's fun if you enjoy it, <laughs> but it wears off. That's what I said. I can't really get you a lot of videos of them coming after me anymore because they just won't do it anymore. Um, but consider adding some part of what we talked about today to your life. Even if you have a small backyard, get some flags and plant out five or six trees and you know, ten, ten bushes, shrubs, and vines. Uh, and just start thinking about how much food that can mean to you and your family, and frankly, to your neighborhood. Um, I know sometimes I sound like an evangelist for this stuff, and I guess in, the, in, in reality, that's what I am. I, I do believe that this stuff's important, especially the planting of perennial crops. Trees, bushes, vines, shrubs, nuts, fruits, berries. If you go to the produce section of the supermarket, this stuff is so expensive. And, uh, you know, we didn't get a lot this year. We did get a few peaches off one of the trees I planted last fall. And uh, so we picked these peaches. My wife was looking at them going, oh, it looks amazing. I'm like, you got to leave it until it's fresh. It looks good. And finally, we picked them, and uh, they were so good. And so the next couple of days go by. She goes to the grocery store. She comes home with a bag of peaches. And uh, she's like, they're good, but they're just not the same. 
And, I mean, that's what we lose in the commercial system. It's a lot of money, and it's not as good. I mean, that's that's really what it is. And this is a considerable investment I'm making here. But for most people, you could do a much smaller system and still produce a tremendous amount of food. And, and start teaching yourself basic propagation. I'm working with Nick Ferguson right now at Perma Ethos. Uh, as, as Josiah and Kelly are starting on the PDC so that we can get that kicked off. You know, going into the late fall, we want to have an online, uh, at least the first stage of plant propagation because there's such, there's so much money to be saved there. I mean, investing a thousand dollars in the knowledge of propagation of plants can easily net you fifty thousand dollars in plants for almost nothing in, in cost. Um, some plants are so easy, it's ridiculous, you know. So, like a uh, mulberry, you cut it off and stick it in the ground and, all things being equal, it'll start growing and produce a new plant. And uh, all of a sudden, these larger installations, these multi-acre installations, they don't happen overnight, but they get a lot more doable. And I, as I finish that, I want you to think about what our, what our nation would be like if everybody did just a little bit of this. And I know it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean, just like I started out the show with in the history segment saying the, the, The reason that, you know, what if if people had just said that's just the way it is about some of the bad things in life? Well, can't that be true if we just say that's the way it is about the good things that could be done but aren't? So it's not, it's not bad to have a, a yard that's nothing but grass. You know, I mean, I, I don't like it, but it's not like you're a bad person for it. You're not hurting anybody. You know, you, 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 it's not like you, it's not equivalent to punching a baby in the face, just to be blunt, right? It's it's yard, and you cut the grass, and you go on about your life, and so it's not like you're 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 actively harming anybody, because I want the analogy to make sense. But you're also not creating anything for yourself, or for your family, or for your neighborhood. And a lot of people feel like, well, I don't have time, but it doesn't have to take a lot of time. And what if? And, you know, the question isn't to suppose that everybody will, but what if everybody did? What if everybody in America with a house that they owned, just that, right? So people that were rented, renting, you just, you're off the hook. You can do something if you find a place, but you know, you're off the hook. People are renting a house, you're off the hook. You know, people are still living at home. Only just the owners of the property, right? If they all planted two or three fruit trees, fruit trees, nut trees, berry bushes, just two or three each on average across the whole country, what would that mean for this nation's food security? Now, if you claim to be a modern survivalist and you're worried about storing food, one of the things that reasons you store food is due to the lack of food security. If there was that additional supply of high-quality food, in our neighborhoods, how much more food security would the nation have? Let's look at it another way. The person who has nothing but a lawn and some ornamental trees, when the true green chem lawn guy comes around and says, we spray these chemicals on and it kills everything, but you'll be fine and you'll, your family will be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, and your dogs will even be fine. Don't let them out after we're done for a day, but then they'll be fine. All right? Okay. They just, whatever, I want my lawn green. Right? If you're eating food off your property, all of a sudden with somebody spraying on it, don't you care a little bit more? Aren't you a little bit more concerned? So there's that. So there'd probably just be a lot less pollution. 
real pollution from chemicals going on lawns. If we Now, there wouldn't be less chemical fertilizer if it was just planting, but just planting alone, we could at least get past a lot of the toxic chemicals. Now, if you did that, and then you ate this pear from your backyard, and you thought, this is really good. This one from the store, not really that good. Would you start to ask a question? Why? And might you say to yourself, Well, where can I get more like this? I can only grow so much. So might you then be more likely to buy from local growers because this is the closest you can get to what you grow yourself. Might you not tell your neighbor, hey, why don't you do this too? And might they ask the same question once they did. So if we could just get that far, how far would it take us? This is why I evangelize this stuff. I guess that's the only real word for it. Because I believe it's the best interest of the nation and the individual for us to be growing our own food again. And I don't mean everybody having a farm. And I don't mean everybody having a full-on, 100% permacultured thing, you know, where you're trying to grow a couple tons of food on a tenth of an acre. If you can do it and you want to do it, God bless you, go for it. I think we need as many people to do that as possible. But if we could just put four, five, or six plants that produce something edible, on average, in America's back and front yards again, in a perennial style, we'd be so far. And then if we would take everybody that can and eats eggs to put in a small laying flock, the, 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 what we'd save from factory farming, because I want you to think about this right now, okay? Um, something just went around that was pretty hard to look at, but... The people you saw doing it aren't as evil as you'd lead, you know, be led to believe by activist types. Anyway, uh, what this was is a video that went around, and it was from a hatchery, and somehow it got blamed on Monsanto, which Monsanto does a lot of bad things, but and I don't think Monsanto would not do this at all. I think they'd do far worse, but they're just they don't they're not in this business yet, so you know, it wasn't them. And it, everything evil in agriculture isn't necessarily Monsanto that did it. And it wasn't this it's a hatchery, I don't remember the name of the hatchery. But they're the biggest hatchery for egg laying chickens in, in the country. And uh they produce millions millions of egg-laying chickens every year. And these are the chickens that go everywhere from backyard uh, laying operations to major commercial operations. These guys produce like 6 million laying hens a year. They also produce over 30 million chickens a year that end up being male. 30 million. Something like that. It might have been 36 million. It might have been 28 million. It's a lot. It's more than you can get your head around. And these, back to my original thing I talked about with Life with the Birds... These birds are not suitable as meat birds. Um, now, if I grow chickens on my property, and, and I'm not sure who's what, and I'm growing a couple dozen or even, you know, four or five dozen chickens, and, uh, you know, half a dozen of them or a dozen of them turn out to be males, and, and I fed them some food, and as I get them up to size, I cull them out, it, it's not that big a deal. But when you start going into thousands and millions, okay, it's a big deal to feed that many birds. And what this video was to cut to the chase was they put this bird, a bunch of these birds, in a big giant meat grinder, and then <laughs> they're just all ground alive, dead, like instantly into this pile of red goo. Oh my god! 
Okay, well, you know, my wife sees that and just, it's awful. I can't believe this. And this is the kind of thing you're talking about. I'm like, well, I don't like what I just saw at all. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. And she says, well, how do you mean that? I'm like, well, they can't grow those birds. They can't afford to. She goes, well, there's still meat. I mean, if even if they're not good quality meat chickens, there's no. I'm like, but the meat yield is so low that it costs more to feed that bird than that bird's worth. She's like, I don't understand. I'm like, okay, if you got going rate for chicken, whether it was high-end, beyond organic, or you know, commercial chicken house chicken, no matter how you raise that chicken, that chicken's going to eat more grain than it's going to yield in meat. It is a losing money proposition. You'll lose money, and in this case, they'll lose money times $30 million. So if you lose a dollar a bird, you've just lost $30 million. And what the hatchery said is, look, This is instantaneous kill. It's death. Right? It's, they're killed as quickly as possible. And, you know, what do you think you're going to do? 30 million times inject them with lethal injection? Right? And they said, if, if anybody wants 30 million baby chicks a year, we'll give them to them. We don't want to do this. This is an expense. We will give these chickens to anybody that wants them. Nobody wants them. All right? That's a reality. That's a reality. How much less of that would there be if four six-bird laying flocks were common throughout America again? That's a reality. That's a reality of a modern system. There's no way around it. Now, Darth and I did think about this, and here's I'll finish with this today because this is an interesting problem is the solution type principle. Okay, how could you make that work? Now, let's, let's, let's just take the $30 million and say, ain't going to happen. Can't deal with 30 million of these things or whatever it is. But how would we, might we put 100,000 of them to use? Well, here's some things that we came up with. Um, we have prisons all over this country. And prison labor is free. And if you grow the food for these birds, then it does become economically viable. And I bet prisoners would love to have fresh chicken as part of their meals, even if it's chicken a la king and chicken soup and all, because these aren't really good for frying, roasting style birds. They're small birds. But taking care of those birds and managing those birds is the same as managing birds that are more appropriate for this use. So if we started setting up prisons in systems with paddock shift chickens, and these, these chickens were provided free... And the chickens were improving the pastures, and the pastures were being to grow produce. So you're producing both produce and chicken, and the chickens were cleaning up the production pasture after it's been used for human consumption. Maybe we could make that work. And maybe, you know, with 20 or 30 prisons, we could get rid of 100,000 of these birds. And they would produce a food yield and a soup yield, and all of the byproducts could go to the pet food industry. And maybe we could do that in schools. And maybe we could set up places that could actually make these things financially viable as long as it was done in a non-profit model. So it wouldn't be about making money, but it would be about not losing money. If, if you could make it break even and feed people in a non-profit model, then maybe there's a partial solution there. But you'll never do it with 30 million birds. That's, that's one chicken for every American. 
And that's the harsh reality. That's just one of the many harsh realities of the modern food system without any abuse. And I, when I watched that, I was reading the comments, and then one guy said something like, that's why I buy organic eggs. Well, do you think that changes anything? In, in, see, that's where organic doesn't do what you think it does. Don't you, I mean, do you think the organic chicken doesn't come from the same hatchery? Do you use the same practices? Do you think the organic chicken doesn't have just as many cockerels to pull it ratio and just as many useless cockerels? Right? Or I buy from a hippie chick that has chickens in her, on her farm. Where do you think she gets them from? Where do you think she gets them? Now she may be hatching her own the way that we do. Probably not. Most people in an egg operation buy their chicks. It's, it, it, cause it makes a lot of sense. It really does. Unless you're, you're running a permaculture operation where the birds play an integral role in the totality of the system. If you just want eggs, it makes sense. You buy chicks, you get eggs. At about two years old, you have new chicks coming in, you start calling out your slower layers. And you just keep buying and replacing and buying and replacing. You call out. And you feed dogs or yourself or you give away chicken or you sell chicken if you're using a dual-purpose breed. But in general, the dual-purpose breed doesn't do either purpose very well. Buff Orpington is probably the best dual-purpose chicken out there. It's an okay meat bird and it's an okay layer. It will not lay. And I'm talking, I don't care how good you treat that chicken. I don't care if you massage it, right? I don't care if that chicken comes in and watches TV with you at night. That bird is, if it's a, if it's a buff Orbington, it's not going to outlay a dedicated bird that makes a really good layer, even something like an old school Rhode Island red. It's not going to lay as much. And it's not going to compete with a, with a, with a, like a sex leak, a golden or a red sex link layer. It, it, it's not going to compete with a white leghorn. It's not going to cr- compete with a leghorn cross. It's just not going to. Well, okay, Rhode Island reds worked all the chicken catalogs say a Rhode Island red. Is a good dual-purpose bird. Yeah, okay, well, come here, and I'll show you what a Rhode Island red hen looks like when she's year and a half old. About the size of a frigging game hen. It's just not a... When you, you pick the bird up, and you feel its breast, and how narrow it is, how small the legs are, it's just not a good meat yield. Right? Then you take a bird like a red ranger, right? Okay, which is a pretty good meat bird, Don't take them to full size, because if you do, they're too big. We learned that this year, too, when we slaughtered some of them. We let a couple of them go to like 16, 18 weeks, and these birds were huge. But they wouldn't be a good market bird. Lots of meat, but not a good market bird. Tastes great, not a good market bird. Just certain ways about how the meat looks at that age that would turn off the consumer in general. So, but take those, and at least you have a big meat yield at the end. Well, they lay... Nowhere close. Like I said, we can tell the eggs from, from those birds. No, nowhere close to the reliability, dependability of your Rhode Islands, your sex links, your leghorns, and those birds just aren't big. So the, the fundamental reality is in a commercial operation, you have to make money, and it makes sense to have purpose-driven birds. The closer you move to growing your own food, and the more that animal's integrated into the total system, the more you can move to dual purposes. Or you can take a purpose-specific bird and still use it for the other purpose at some point. So you can take a bird like a buff Orpington 
that's truly dual purpose. And you don't care. This, this bird lays, you know, five eggs a week instead of six. No big deal. Multiply it by a hundred. Okay? There's a hundred eggs you don't get this week, and you're trying to make a living from it. It's much different. It's much different. So if a lot of the practices that you see in commercial farming can be made better through permaculture farms, beyond organic farms, pasture-raised meats, etc. But if you really, really want it to change, then more people have to bring it much closer to home on a lot more small scales for it to happen. Or it's going to be the way that it is. And baby chicks will go into the grinder at the tune of $30 million a year. And I'm sure they're going to a cat food factory or a dog factory or something like that. And I know if you watch that, it looks horrible. But what's your solution? What's your solution to that problem? I'd actually like to hear that. Somebody might actually have one that's viable. I've given you the best I could come up with. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.